So today, in, in the scope of church history, church life, church world, today's actually Pentecost Sunday. And so I think for a lot of us that, that didn't grow up in the church, like that might be something that we don't think about or something that we, that we miss. But today's kind of the day that we mark Pentecost Sunday, which is when the Holy Spirit came to live within the church as a new dwelling place. And, uh, and water, water berger, and <laughs> yeah, anyway. Yeah, you, you can explain how to pronounce your name. I screw it up every time. Katie and Water have been a part of Origins for several years now, and, and Water um, jumped into seminary life about a year and a half ago. And, and during that time, like, you know, he's felt a call to certain things, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But Water's going to come and, and kind of share with us about Pentecost today. And it's neat. Like, this is a neat opportunity because Water's brain and my brain work very differently from each other. And so I'm excited uh, to have this opportunity for Water and also just to invest. Like, you know, part of, part of the life in the church is, like, as God is raising people up, we want to be able to invest in them and, and give them opportunities. And so that's part of what we get to do today, too. So it's a win-win-win-win-win, you know, one of those things. So... Water, come on up, man, and we're excited to, excited to hear from you today. Forgive the delay. That was, I, just like Matthew, I will pace around because I don't know what to do with my body if I don't have an instrument in front of me. So if there's any guitarists who sing without an instrument, they understand what I'm talking about. So today... Um, Okay, today my uh, Seneca Pentecostal inside of me is really, really joyous because I spent a lot of my religious development out in a Pentecostal church out in the Seneca area. So um, before I was able to put terms to what I believe and everything, I was influenced by a church that was um, potentially overtly, overly charismatic, but had, had, a, had a huge influence, Holy Spirit, inside their teaching. So um, today... This week, the past really month and a half that Matthew and I have been talking, I've been able to sp- sit through, and um, uh, it, it's interesting because none of my seminary classes had gone through, gone through Pentecost, so this was definitely a um, using the methods and the terms that I've learned over the year and a half, go through independently, and be like, how do I speak on this? Um, I've also not taken any preaching classes, so this is also just kind of like, how do I speak on this? Uh, and so uh, I, I want to preface this. I come from seminary life, but I also work as a polymer chemist, and so everything that I do is highly technical. So I'm going to try to not be that, but I, you're going to see that. And if you're a technical person, you're going to enjoy this. If you're not a technical person, um, I will have my email, and uh, please jot it down. Uh, that's your cue, Colin. Yeah, jot my email down, and I will be happy to uh, send you these notes um, and or um, speak through anything that might not be understood through this. Um, we're going we're gonna to read the passage. We're going to go through Acts 2. We're uh, going to go through some concepts inside of this. We're going to look at Acts 2. Um, Zach sp- mentioned briefly a few weeks ago that Second Temple wasn't a complete temple, and so we're going to touch on that in the light of Pentecost. We're going to talk about Babel briefly and how it, uh, how it fits in the light of the New Testament. Um, and then we're going to see how, how Holy Spirit and God's tabernacling within us, um, we'll, we'll elaborate on that term, how it impacts us today. So um, I'm going to pray real quick because I have nerves and they are exploding. Um, Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Father, thank you for your guidance. Holy Spirit, I pray that you just give comfort you take away anxiety, and you play, and I pray that my words just are fluid and are calm and are clean. Um, 
let me be understandable and let your message come through us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start just reading through Acts 2. So um, open your Bibles there if you have them or your tablets. I'm a tablet person, but at the beginning of seminary, I bought a fancy Bible that reads just like a book, and I'm really excited to use it today. Um, So we're going to do that. Um, So we're going to be reading out the ESV and uh, Acts 2, verse 1. Uh, we will be going through all of verse. We will be going through all of Acts. So stay there for a minute. Um, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Alamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and uh, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to our words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what is uttered through the prophet Joel, that in the last days it shall be God, declares, and I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they all shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and the signs in the earth below, in blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And now shall come to pass, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves knows. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. And therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on this throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured on on you, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my God, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, it was a large chunk of scripture, and it serves a purpose. The hard part is the, 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 the narrative that Luke, the author of Acts, is speaking really encompasses that whole part, and there's going to be elements strewn throughout it that really paint, um, paint the picture. And as we, as, we, as Gen- we are Gentiles. I'm going to use that term to describe myself because that's what we are. As Gentiles, we see this 2,000 years removed, and we're like, oh, that actually sounds like a pretty complete picture, just the way Peter and Luke wrote it and Peter spoke. But to a Jew... And to the people that Luke and the people in the context of, of first century Jewish life and Greek life, this painted a completely different picture than we might perceive it to be. Um, so we're going we're gonna to paint the picture that went into this passage, um, going through a brief timeline on what happened and why this is important relative to Easter. So Colin, there we go. We're going to start this, and I hope I don't uh, ramble. This is what the outline's for. I have a tendency to ramble. Um, and, uh, and knowledge dump, um, even if that knowledge dump isn't cohesive, I feel like filling space means I'm doing something good. So first, Jesus died on Passover. We all know that. That's Easter. That's resurrection. Good and, good and done. Um, you know, the significance of that is man of God came on earth as man, and just like Israel back in the days of Egypt, Jesus died and God passed over humanity. And so that's Passover. Uh, through Jesus' sacrifice. And so the translation of in the Old Testament, we have him passing over the Israelites through the lamb, the blood of the lamb. In the New Testament, uh, he passes over humanity by the blood of the lamb, i.e. Christ. And then uh, come resurrection, Jesus spent about a week to 10 days, depending on your timeline and tradition, with the apostles and the disciples, um, speaking with them, teaching them a little bit, saying, you know, I fulfilled everything I said, and now behold, I am God. Um, and then, and then uh, Luke Luke divides his ascension between the end of the book of Luke and the beginning of the book of Acts. So you kind of have to look in both places to get a full picture. So in Acts 1, uh, Luke said, uh, Luke tells us in verse 5, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And in verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Um, this mirrors Matthew's Great Commission, where Jesus says you, you will uh, go out and evangelize, you will disciple, and you'll spread to all corners of the earth. But Luke, in both Luke and Acts, comes in here and says something odd. Um, he sa- Jesus says, I will enable you through the Holy Spirit to do these things. So um, Luke is preparing for uh, Pentecost. And then in the middle, we have this really random story. We all know Judas betrayed Jesus. It's pretty, pretty well knowledge in um, in Christianity, and then we chose Matthias as Judas's replacement. And what's really interesting, and it fits in here really well, is Matthias was chosen as Judas' replacement because he was with Jesus from the beginning, and he was a man of good character, and they did a thing called lots, which is essentially holy gambling, um, where they, some people say it's like, um, like uh, uh, there's a few scholars that say like it was reminiscent of a D20 die that they would roll, and uh, some of them was like, um, you know, they would literally draw straws. Um, we see this same practice when the uh, soldiers were dividing up Jesus' clothing on the cross. But this is a practice that was commonplace to divine God's, um, God's direction. So we have Jesus' promise-holding spirit, 
And then we have this last instance of Lot, where it's man saying, God, tell us what to do through these physical means. And Matthias was chosen as his replacement. And then uh, Luke in Acts goes into Pentecost. So, and that's important. Um, we'll get into why that's important later. Pentecost was important before this day. So Pentecost is actually a feast that the Jews celebrated all the time. Uh, back in Leviticus, when the OG Pentecost was introduced, it was a harvest festival, just a few days after Passover, celebrating first fruits. In the second century BC, right before the Romans invaded um, Judea, it had transformed into a practice of covenant renewal. Every time we'd celebrate this, it would just be, God, you love us, we love you, we have our believing loyalty, let's remember our covenant that we made with each other. Um, and this was in the middle of the exile, so the Jews just used as a celebration, remember, like, we're exiled, but God, you still promised us good things. And then by the time we get to Hellenistic times, and Hellenistic times is a term for when Rome, when Rome controlled Judea, so these are Greek Roman Jews, um, it had a transition from a covenant celebration to remembering God giving the law. So we had entered a time where the Jews had kind of reunified under the second temple, but they were still really exiled. It's, we're in a hybrid situation where there was a place for the Jews to reside, but they were all over the empire. Um, and so they were remembering this as a giving the law, and this is important for, um, as we go into this, it was a morning sacrifice. They'd wake up early. The Jewish day started at 6 a.m. They'd wake up early, go to the temple, and they would give a sacrifice. Um, so remember that morning, and remember Matthias being drawn by lots. And so now we have a picture of why, when, pass, uh, when Pentecost happened. So if we go to the place, um, this is really interesting. Tradition states that the place of Pentecost happened in the upper room. Um, Jesus told the disciples when he was ascending, go, to the, uh, go wait for me in Jerusalem, and I'll be with you soon um, through the Holy Spirit. And they returned to the Jerusalem. And the story says, Luke says, and they went to the upper room, all the apostles. Um, that Greek word, uperoon, means upper room, means bedroom. So we really perceive that as a bedroom of a house. But we also hear there's 120 people. Those two things don't go together well. I can't think of a bedroom and 120 people plus 12 apostles sitting in a room. So, but at the end of Luke, and like I said, we have to piecemeal a little bit of end of Luke and beginning of Acts. It says, when Jesus ascended, they went continually to the temple and praised God. So we know that they were still practicing Jews, and they went to the temple. And then here's the kicker. In Acts 2, when we actually hear that, that God came down as a mighty rushing wind, filling the entire house, a lot of people view that as the upper room, and they translate it as house or bedroom. But that oikos term, um, that oikos term just means chamber in general. So if we put this all together, they were probably in the temple because Pentecost was a morning sacrifice. There was 120 of them. That really doesn't fit into an upper bedroom. And that word oikos for chamber can really mean room in general. And the temple's filled with chambers for people to move off to the side and enter quiet places and have conversations. So if we, if we receive the significance of this, they were in the temple praising, and God met them in the temple. God came down while they were in the temple offering their regular Jewish sacrifice. And this is kind of proven and validated by Acts 2.15 when they were saying, you guys are drunk, and Peter says, no, it's, it's 9 a.m. Like, like, this would be ridiculous if we were drunk. Um, we're, we're Christians, not drunkards. Um, so it wouldn't be, I guess it is possible at that time, so don't, don't put it past people, but you have to try a little bit. All right, so the conclusion is um, Pentecost likely took place in the temple, and um, uh, just 
because of the feast, the morning sacrifices, they were all together in one place, and 100 disciples and 120 were also still practicing Jews. So let's not forget that. We, we are adopting a tradition from Jews as Gentiles. So now we get to the day. We painted, we painted the timeline from Jesus' death to Pentecost. We painted the picture. We painted the location. Now let's go to the day. So we know the disciples were all together, and they were praying, most likely sacrificing. I'm not confident on that. It doesn't say. Um, and then a rushing wind and tongues like fire. Now, it's not tongues of fire. The, the grammar is clear. It's tongues as if fire. So, but the word tongues is the organ tongues. So let's not, something like tongues appeared above their heads, but they were like fire. Um, don't ask me truly what that means. Um, it's no one really knows. There's no consensus. But we know tongues like fire appeared above their heads. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they started speaking in multiple languages. And this, you hear the term tongues a lot. In this specific story, I'm going to stick with the definition of multiple languages because that's what the story says. In later parts of the Bible, that definition may change, but here it means multiple languages. Um, so a rushing wind, tongues like fire, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking in multiple languages. I wouldn't consider that a chronological order. I really consider that participating all in parallel. All those things kind of happened at once. So don't take that as you have to be filled with Holy Spirit and then you speak with tongues after you hear rushing wind and tongues like fire. I really think it's like in the moment of chaos that that was for people who have probably never seen this, it, it happened all at once. It's like when you, it's like when you come across a parked car um, in the middle of a road and you ram it and it hits the car in front of it. That person doesn't, might not feel two impacts. So it's just like that. All these things happen at once. Luke just has to write down the narrative in some fashion. So that's the way he did it. And then the result is they came out, of, they rushed out of their chamber. The crowd was there. And all who um, heard were amazed and confused, providing opportunity for Peter to then share the gospel and how this fulfills it. Um, it's really interesting. And here's where the temple comes into place. Because if they were in the temple, the temple allowed Gentiles in. So he had the 120 people. And unless you were going into the, as you, as you entered the hem, temple, as you go into more, more and more holy places, you had to be more and more Jewish to enter. But in the outer courts, where they're most likely meeting, there was Gentiles. So they had everybody there because the temple was a tourist trap. Like, honestly, Jesus complained about that early on in his career uh, here on earth, that it was a tourist trap. So, so, you know, we hear each of them heard it in their own language. It, there was a whole Roman Empire uh, calling. That might have not been a clear transition to the next slide. Thank you. Um, who was there isn't truly significant because Luke uses this term. He lists a whole slew of people, but really, if you look at it on a map, it's just the whole Roman Empire. And to the Jews at that point and to the world at that point, the Roman Empire was the world. So in reality, just like we have a conversation of, you know, the flood flood back in Genesis, did it encompass the whole world or just the local Judea area? It really doesn't matter. The point of the narrative is that it did everything. And the same thing here, Luke says, he lists all these people and says, you know, it's not the point of specifically who they heard the language on, except there's probably a finite amount of people there and a finite amount of languages. But it really is just that the whole world was present. And so you had the whole world present. They all heard a language in their, in their they all heard it in their own language, um, whether that was each of them heard it, whether that was the disciples were speaking in all these different languages or they just heard whatever they were saying in their own language, I don't know how that miracle took place specifically. But we know that they understood each other. They understood what the apostles and the disciples were saying. The whole world was there. 
And here's where the first significance of Pentecost comes in. If we go to the story of Babel, the exact opposite happens. Man was unified. Man was unified. It spoke one language. Um, And then they decided as a one language speaking society to build themselves a city and a tower up to the heavens for their own name. And God said in response, let us go down and confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. And then the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. What we see here in Acts, the first aspect of Pentecost, is the complete reversal of that. And why that's significant is part of the language, but we'll get into that once we go through Babel. So Babel is everyone spoke one. They decided to do something for themselves, build a city up to heaven. And then God said, you know what? They shouldn't be doing this. Man shouldn't be doing this for themselves. How do I divide them? Oh, I'm going to divide their language up, make it where they can't understand each other. And it's significance because that synkeo word, confuse, is the same word that Luke uses. Um, in, the Greek, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Greek there is synkeo. Luke uses synkeo. Most scholars signify that as a connection. It might, if you weren't, if you weren't there, some people might say that's a stretch, but that's kind, of the, that's kind of the thinking that most people take. And the narrative kind of suggests the, suggests the same thing. So Acts um, was a reversal of Babel, and the world was then unified under this common language that the apostles, were, the apostles and disciples were speaking. Now, when we go into Babel, we understand that there's a significance to that because the term, they build themselves a city and a tower up to heavens for their own name. We know in the Old Testament, worship was directional. Every instance of temple or every instance where God wanted worship, he would come down to man, and every instance where humanity wanted to meet with God or humanity wanted to create idols, humanity would go up to high places, up to mountains, up to the tops of trees. Asherah poles, which you hear a lot in the Old Testament, we don't truly know what they are. We know that they were tall, signifying a high place of worship. And so man, unified under one language, said, let us go up to heaven. Let us go up to where God dwells. And God says, no, that's not for you to be there. This is, my, this is my domain and territory, so let's disperse you. Acts is the exact opposite. We see a rushing wind and tongues like fire came down from heaven. So this is God meeting with man instead of man tempting to meet with God. So God, man went up. God said, no, let's disperse you. And this time, God came down and said, let's unify you once again. So that's Babel. But there's the second aspect of this that, that we see fulfilled that's really interesting is just like Babel and the worship going up and down, we see the language of temple and of tabernacle. And what that means, when I say temple and tabernacle, that's where is God's dwelling place? So we see elements of where is God's dwelling place. In the Old Testament, we know that the tabernacle guided the Jews, but God dwelt there, either in a cloud or by a pillar of fire. We know that when, uh, Sol- when David planned and Solomon made the temple, God came down and dwelled there so much so that they couldn't worship in it because his glory was there. We know, that, we know that temple and tabernacle in Revelations, which is um, I'm going to use the term eschaton for, that just describes the end time. We know at that time we will see a face-to-face, we will be face-to-face with God once again in reflection of the face-to-face relationship we had in creation. And creation, Eden, was a temple to God. It doesn't say it explicitly, but we know um, most, Christi- most Christian scholars believe Eden was a temple to God, and we as men and humanity were designed to take care of the temple, take care of the garden. 
Um, so there are four elements of creation, I mean, of tabernacle and temple that are present in Acts that we're going to go briefly through, and I'm um, going to try not to make this look like a lecture. Uh, so the four elements is that a temple is God-inspired, it maintains God's presence, it has the giving of the law, and it results in the unity of some people. Um, that, is, that is the goal. Those four elements make up temple. There are others, and we can, and, and, but those are the four I'm going to focus on. So if we, start, if we start in the five temples presented in Scripture, and we look at how they're God-inspired, creation, we hear that the very, one of the very first things that we hear is, and God said, and then it was. God inspired it. No one else was around. You know, there was angels. We see that in the narrative. There was other heavenly beings, but for the creation of earth and the creation of Eden, God said, and it was. And the tabernacle, um, at the Israelite creation of that tent of meeting, God told Moses, let them build me a sanctuary. Rise up skilled laborers and let them build me. God told Moses to do this. The first temple um, between David and Solomon, it's kind of confusing because the first part we hear about, we hear David asking, God, let me build you a house to stay. Um, and we, hear that, we see that in First and Second Samuel. But in Chronicles, which is a parallel history of that, it explicitly states, um, God saying, Solomon shall build my temple. And we take that as the author saying, we want this to... Point and have a nail pointed to God inspired this. Pentecost, we've already gone over this. Jesus said, and you will receive power from the Holy Spirit. Man won't, man won't take power, but you will receive power from God. God inspired. And at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation 26, um, the angel that, uh, Luke, that John is talking to said, and the Lord has sent his angel to show these things, meaning that God inspired these visions. And so that shows that in all five temples, God inspired it. Now, we move on to God's visible presence, and at creation, we know God walked around the garden. Besides the miracles of creation, which I, I don't want to take those lightly, but the real, the real kicker is God walked in his garden. At the tabernacle, we have the cloud of the Lord by day and fire by night. At the first temple, when, the, when, the first temple, when Solomon completed it, the glory cloud came down and fire came down from heaven, burning the sacrifices, showing that God dwelt in his temple and man couldn't be there. Second temple is the kicker here. As Zach said, it was an incomplete temple. It was a complete construction, but it was an incomplete temple in anticipation of Pentecost because God didn't come down there. There was no visible presence of God in the second temple. When you go read Ezra, it literally just says, and Ezra completed the temple and they started worshiping there. And that's it. No God presence. Um, we know there are stories of miracles there, so we know God you know, had influence in that space, but God wasn't there. And then at Pentecost, um, very similar to the language of the first tabernacle and the first temple, you have a rushing wind filling the entire house and tongues of fire. That fire is a parallel to the fire of heaven coming down, and that rushing wind is a parallel to, whole, to God's Spirit coming into a room. And at the very end, in the eschaton, the dwelling place of God is with man. Um, giving of the law, creation said, be fruitful, multiply, do not eat of the tree, law. Tabernacle, we have the whole book of Leviticus as a Jewish law. At the first temple, um, God renews his covenant and says, The people who are, who are called by my name humble themselves. I will hear from heaven and forgive them of their sin. He told the law. And in the, in the story, we actually have them reading the law to the people. And the second temple, again, didn't happen. It was completed. It was made. It was inaugurated. But the second temple, they didn't read the law. It was an incomplete temple. 
In the, in the Pentecost, um, Peter comes in and says, repent and, repent and be baptized and, uh, of your sins, and Jesus Christ will forgive you. And that's law. It's a little different than Old Testament law, but it was still law. And then in Revelations, when we have perfection, it just says, blessed are those who wash their robes, who are pure, outside are the sinners. And those are the people that don't enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the law is there, but we're in perfection. So it's unnecessary to state it again. And then the the last element of temple and tabernacle is that it results in the unity of God's people. In creation, Adam and Eve were perfectly unified. Um, until they sinned. So we have humanity and unity, humanity with God unity. In the tabernacle, Israel was all together in one place, surrounded by, uh, surrounding this tent of meeting. They were unified. In the first temple, again, that temple and God coming down unified all of Israel. They are, they are at the peak of their kingdom. At the second temple, they were unified, but not fully. Most of Israel had come back, but they were most, about, not most of them, many were still in exile. They're dispersed throughout the land. They had grown much bigger, and it was harder to bring them back together. Um, so again, it wasn't complete. It was there. The element was there, but it wasn't complete. And then at Pentecost, we show the world. The whole world was there. Everyone heard in their language. The Roman Empire was there, all represented inside the temple. And at the eschaton, at the very end, we have creation being purified and unified, sinners being cast out and uh, given to their punishment, and then humanity and creation unified with God once again. And so those are the four elements. And it's important because each of those four elements translate into why Pentecost was important. You know, um, the Israelites, they had been seeking, they had been seeking God's presence and hadn't truly been seeing it in the, in the temple that they worshipped in. Um, in fact, after Jesus died, before the temple was uh, destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, there was stories of the amount of miracles decreasing. There was, there was reported miracles and recorded miracles in the temple, and they decreased after Jesus died and was resurrected. Like, and the Jews took that as a symbol of God's presence is removed from our temple, and, it resulted, and then it finalized in their destruction. And even now, the Jews don't have a temple. A lot of modern Jews have to change how they implement the law because most of the law deals with the sacrifice at the temple, and because it doesn't exist that, that sacrifice doesn't exist. A lot of Jews have to th- rethink. And they've even adopted a very Christian attitude that the laws are meant to be followed by the heart. It's a heart issue, not a sacrifice issue. And so you think that, and you're like, oh, yeah, there's Jesus. He gave that to us. Um, and then we are able to have, uh, we, give the, we have the law. Jesus said, you know, love God, love people, simplified. Repent and believe, and I will save you. We have the unity of people, um, the world, and uh, the Bible says that all who believe will be unified and, and saved. So Pentecost, in summary, um, was a once again on creation. It's a reflection of God coming down, meeting with man, and we had that face-to-face, spirit-to-spirit interaction with God. Um, it was an expansion fulfillment of the first temple because the law was fulfilled in Jesus, and we no longer had to sacrifice, and Christians accept that. And we, ever since, ever since our new understanding, we never have to sacrifice again. Uh, like, kill animals. There's sacrifice, but it's a different form. Um, and then Pentecost, as the second temple anticipated Pentecost, Pentecost completes it. It says, you know, second temple wasn't complete, and the construction, though the building was complete, Pentecost comes in and says, this is above and beyond a building, and instead of, uh, instead of um, encapsulating and tabernacling in a building, God tabernacles in man and comes down and dwells in us. Um, and that's where the proof was of them being in the temple, because God didn't fill the temple. He filled the people. 
So there's that dichotomy there. And then uh, Pentecost reflects what's going to happen in the eschaton. As, as, as in Genesis, eventually we will have a face-to-face -face interaction with God. Pentecost says, you know, I'm going to have a spirit-to-spirit. -spirit. And then when you receive your new fulfilled body, bodies, we'll be able to meet face-to-face. -face. So that's what happened at Pentecost, and that's why it's important. We have a reversal of Babel and a completion of temple. And that really exists as a why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus do this? Because Jesus came as a savior of the Jews, and both of those reflect key Jewish problems. They didn't see God in their temple, and they were dispersed. And, God, and Jesus said, because of my work, because of my law, because of my law living life, my death, and my resurrection, I can fulfill all the needs that you have. But it's not just the Jews anymore. I'm going to give it to everybody. I'm going to give it to all who believe. And, uh, and Peter, th through David, says, says this and, uh, in Acts 2.31. He says, and David... He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and we are all witnesses. Again, that you think of that worship. God didn't, uh, God, Jesus didn't go up to heaven. God raised him up. There was an element of God uh, infiltrated that worship moment and raised Jesus up. And then verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out on this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Again, David didn't go up to heaven. Jesus did. And Jesus would bob to heaven. David understood that true worship was God coming down. And so we see that Jesus' work promised the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost was a fulfillment. And so 10 days after Jesus' death, and 40 days after waiting, after his ascension, mankind was presented a pathway of unity with God. Um, God said, I will dwell in your spirit through my spirit. Um, this was because of Christ's work, his law-fulfilling life, his death and his res resurrection, fulfilling God's plan of unity with people, and then this indwelling is an image of the face-to-face -face nature that we will eventually have in Revelations and at, in the New Jerusalem of the eschaton. Um, What's uh, just we see these forty days, and it's uh, it's there is a fifty-day gap between between Easter and Pentecost, and that forty days actually represents something. Jesus was here with the disciples for ten, and then he left for forty and said, wait, wait in Jerusalem, and I will uh, meet with you through the Holy Spirit. That 40 days, if you read through the Bible, that 40 days represents waiting for God to do something. So every, a lot of times you see 40, and we just think it's 40 days, but we see it in, uh, we see it, Jesus wandered the desert for 40 days, the Israels wandered the desert for 40 years, Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments of 40 days. And it really is that 40 represents God, we as, we as mankind are waiting for God to do something in preparation of God's moment. So Jesus ascended, and the disciples went to the upper room and waited for 40 days in preparation of God. It wasn't just they were waiting because Jesus said, here's my timeline. Um, there's really no proof that that 40 days is real, except Luke wrote it down. But what it is, is, Luke wrote 40 days because he said, here's a moment where the disciples were waiting for God to come. The only proof that we have that the 40 days is true is because Luke said Pentecost happened on Pentecost, and we know that timeline. So there's some validity, but 40 days was important because it's, the disciples were waiting for God in anticipation of his work. And so Jesus came down and said, wait for 40 days. Wait in anticipation of God. The Holy Spirit will come, and you'll have a fulfilled relationship with me. 
Pentecost was a fulfillment of relationship. And so now we have Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. We have God. We have God dwelling inside of us. The Holy Spirit is an equal part of the Trinity. He is no less or more important than Father or Son. We have God dwelling inside of us. God dwells inside of us, and he says, I will love you through you and through my work inside of you. We are now representatives. Uh, if you look at the image of God, is fulfilled inside of the Holy Spirit because now uh, as images, as humans, we now not just have our own spirit, but God. And so we're able to perfect that image. And on top of that, we have the image of Christ inside of us telling us how we should live inside of this law-fulfilled life. And so when we go to the now and the application, we went through this whole long thing, and I apologize, again, really technical. Does anyone feel worn out? Does anyone feel like I'm rambling? No. Matthew gave me the thumbs up, so I'm going to, no one else responded. Yeah. Thanks. Um, my, uh, my Pentecostal days, our church was to a distracting degree, so don't take this as a critique. Um, church was very responsive, so there's just a difference. And my last message was when I was in middle school, and it was a legitimate message. I preached for a good 30 minutes. My last message was me in middle school preaching to sixth grade, uh, six-year-olds. They're a lot more responsive than adults are. Um, yeah, yeah, Moses was a good sermon. Um, okay, so now we go into the now. We have Holy Spirit inside of us. Temple is fulfilled. God is tabernacled inside of humanity. We are saved through Jesus' work, and we have the ability to continue it. Now what? Okay, so first, you have, Jesus says in Acts 1.8, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. The key to that, the key to that, the key to that, Colin, the key to that. Thank you. Um, I meant to bring a clicker, and I forgot it at work. Um, I use them for chemistry presentations all the time. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. The way Jesus says that is there's, there's cause. Because you have the power, you'll be my witnesses. And the reverse, you are my witnesses because you have the power, power of the Holy Spirit. Matthew doesn't really touch on this, um, so we have to combine those two together. But Luke says, you know, because the Spirit of Christ dwells within you, you will become you will become um, my representatives. Paul kind of speaks on this when he says, I no longer do, I can't do what I want to do. I, I, I only do what I do not want to do. Paul's basically saying, I sin, and I can't not sin, except for Jesus inside of me. Luke is saying, because of Jesus inside you, you are now his witness. And Matthew says, expands on that, and you will be his witness, and you will disciple the earth. So part of it is evangelism and discipleship. We spread the gospel message of Jesus and we disciple the world into salvation through Christ's work in us, i.e. Holy Spirit. Uh, Matthew 28, you know, I, I didn't realize I wrote this down. Oh, terrible notes. Uh, yeah, go make disciples of all nations. Again, reflection of Babel, reflection of Pentecost, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We say that term, now it's significant. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. You have two aspects in here of temple. If you notice them, you have community of Christ. I will be with you. At, excuse me. And you're observing all that I commanded you. You have law. So you have unity with Christ and you have law. And Paul speaks on this in Romans 8. And, uh, and this is where the law and discipleship and evangelism comes in. There is therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Uh, Holy Spirit sets us free. Holy Spirit perfects us. Holy Spirit, the term is sanctify. 
Um, Holy Spirit disciples us into the new creation that Christ instilled onto us to his work. And then Paul expands on that in Galatians when he actually explicitly states, you know, don't be sinful, don't be drunkards, don't be lawless. And then in uh, Galatians 5, which is the verse that I remember singing upward basketball as a memory verse, um, for the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, yeah, thank you. I've, I, th- I got my word wrong. And self-control, and the key term in there is against these things, there are no law. Before that, the verse preceding, Paul says, here's everything you shouldn't do. Here's everything the law forbids, but here's where the law is fulfilled. You know, be, we summarize that, be a good person, but each one of those fruits, um, we, we see it, the way he describes it is, there's two ways we can understand it. One way to describe it is each one of those fruits is equal, but also the way the list comes in, those fruits are summarized in the term love. So we're going we're gonna to address both of those because they mean the same thing. All those fruits come together in love. You know, love, joy. And it, it, in, in English, we could translate as love that is joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. So Paul is saying the fruit of the Spirit within you, instead of producing sin, produces love, produces good thing, produces, produces the fullness of God's creation in your heart. So we have evangelism and discipleship as a result of Pentecost. Um, and the next result is we have giftings and we have unity. And those are together because Paul tells us that the giftings that we have are for the unity. So that's why they're together. You think they aren't disparate things that I just decided to put. Um, Peter, I'm going to speak with Peter first. Um, Paul and Peter both speak on spiritual gifts. That conversation is tricky. And if this church decides, I'd rather leave it to our pastor because that is, that is something that is very denominational. It's very personal opinions but I'm going to speak in general. There are giftings of the Holy Spirit. Those specific giftings, debatable. But each of us has received one, whether it's as general as um, the ability to, uh, whether it's as general as just being generous, that is a gift of the Spirit, or it's as specific as um, I can heal someone's broken arm, that is a gift of the Spirit. I'm trying to use non, non, yeah. Um, but each of us has one. Each of us has a gift. Um, uh, I hope, and we're supposed to dwell, uh, develop them, learn them, and as Peter says, each of us has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And that term, varied, each of us get one, and they're all different. Some people might have the same gifts, but they're all different. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, to each of us is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He, ex- he makes explicit that those giftings are spiritual, Holy Spirit giftings. And then in Ephesians 4, 7, um, which a lot of people consider a fivefold ministry, um, really big in the Pentecostal church, but it kind of just says there are these five main giftings in this, in this passage. And here what they're for. But grace was given each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, and to the measure of the fullness, stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul says... Earth, Christ gave these gifts to man, just as Christ said, I will give you the Holy Spirit. And then Paul says it's for unity and maturity. That discipleship element plays back in. We're supposed to grow. So any gifting that I have, any gifting, if, I determine, if, I, if it's determined that preaching is going to be eventually be my gift, that gift is worthless if it's not used for the unity of the church. If music stays my gift, that gift is worthless if it's not the unity and discipleship of the church. If I find out that I can raise people from the dead, I'm use a big one, and I use it for my own glorification, it is worthless. If I don't use any gifting that I have for the maturity and the unity of the church, I'm using that gifting wrong. 
And we, we as Christians, we have Holy Spirit inside of us kind of convicting us when we do these things, but it's also really easy to ignore them because our, our, our spirit dwells alongside Christ. So we're still in there. And, our, and, and Paul continuously says, I still sin, and I wish I could get rid of my flesh, but I can't. So we know it's really easy to ignore Christ, and it's really easy to ignore Holy Spirit. But it, he's there. He's convicting us towards growth and towards unity. And it's our responsibility to address him and our responsibility to learn to listen to him well so that we can hear his convictions and grow in them. Because if he's, designed to, uh, if he's designed to disciple the church, he's also designed to disciple us. And then the last, um, I saved this one last because it's really big and it's really fulfilling and it's really powerful. Pentecost, again, was God-inspired in theophany. But theophany, I meant to describe this term earlier because it was on my slide. Theophany is just a term that we use when God shows up when God shows up. Not necessarily miracles. It's not miracles. It's when God shows up. And so in each of the Old Testament texts that said, you know, wind and fire, that was taken by Jews as God showing up. That wind and fire, we can't perceive God's physical presence, except for a few key times where Moses saw his butt. But um, we know that God shows up. And so that's the term theophany. Um, And so Paul tells us that we did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Two things come out of this. God calls God Father through us, inside of us. We cannot call God Father. That is, that is how that process comes out is really icky and really iffy and really debated. But the conclusion is we cannot call God Father. God can only call God Father. So it's his inspiration but then we are also children and sons of God. We are God's uh, son. Sonship was important in that world. It means sonship was a reflection of who your father was. As a son, I was a representative of my father. So to a certain extent, if I'm a son of God, I am God's representative in this world. I'm being clear. I'm not God. But the things I do reflect on God. He allows that. As God, he has put his spirit in me. And, and as Paul says, it's a mystery of how this really plays out. But what I do on the earth reflects him. And Jesus even tells us that the unity of the church is a, is, a, is a reflection of God's unity with his body and can directly be a tool of, of our evangelism. So we know that it's true. Uh, that's just, I, I don't want to say more on that because it's really impressive knowing that I can influence God's perception in the world. What I do to my neighbor influences how that neighbor views God. And that's really tough. It's really tough. But the benefit of it is... Um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul also says, from one spirit we are baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And then in 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The benefit is, yes, I'm a representative of God, but in reality, it's not me. It's not me, it's us. Paul, Paul whenever he speaks of the church, Jesus, a lot of times when he speaks to the church, in Acts, when, he, when you hear that you it's plural. We don't see it in our English language. This is a point where the King James Version does a really good job because they use thou. Their, their the thou language has a plural you, and it's really good to understand where, where the Bible is plural. But Paul is saying here, now you, plural, are the body, and each of you individually are members of it. So we are both unique and cohesive, if that makes sense. As a cohesive, we make up the body, and as individual members, we influence each other inside of it. So I can do something negative, and that, pers- and that, and that um, changes perception of the church entirely. And that's why pastors who are very public have, you know, they say they get an extra a double helping of mashed potato judgment because 
they're very public and they're very front and center in perception of the church. But then the, the church has the opportunity as a cohesive group to be like, yeah, no, that's not how we operate. And let our actions be against what you might preach if that pastor is preaching something incorrectly. And so there's accountability in there. We are each individual members, but we are also part of the great whole. Okay. Seems I skipped a part. I did skip a part. So, that, yeah, I just lost myself. Thank you, Matthew, for this opportunity to realize that I'm, I can't wait for my class on this. Okay, so, Holy Spirit came down to earth after Christ came down to earth and after Christ ascended. So God came down to earth in the Old Testament. Christ came down to earth in the New Testament. And then once Christ went back up to heaven, Holy Spirit came down, and God has promised he's never going. Christ, uh, God told the Israelites, you know, I will be with you always as long as you follow my commands. The Israelites did not follow God's commands, and so from a cer- to a certain perspective, he abandoned them. He promised them he would abandon them. So it's not God went against his word, but to a certain extent, he abandoned them, put them in exile. Um, but because of his promise with them, he kept them taken care of and said, eventually, I'll send Jesus. Jesus came down to earth, told the disciples from the very beginning, I will eventually leave you, but it's better because the Holy Spirit will come. Holy Spirit comes, and this is when I will be with you. When Jesus' words, which contradict themselves because he left, when he says, I will be with you forever in the, in the Great Commission, he then leaves. So what does that mean? Holy Spirit is that I will be with you forever. If you're a Christian and you are baptized with Holy Spirit, which I'm going to say this and allow Matthew to potentially elaborate on this, if you, when you are saved, you have access to Holy Spirit. What that looks like specifically, I'm not going to tell you. But understand this. When you understand that Jesus is Christ and understand Jesus is Savior, Holy Spirit is with you because that is Christ's Spirit. And so if Christ dwells inside of you, Holy Spirit dwells inside you. They are, they are, they are, they are the Trinity. So you can't have one without the other. Um, and so, uh, Colin, let's go to the slide with Acts 2.42 on it. I skipped it in my notes. There we go. So let's just, see, let's just see how Luke sums this up. And Luke is a much better speaker than I am. He's a much better writer than I am, to be technical. And then we also know Holy Spirit came down. I have 2,000 years of studying, allowing to inform what I did here and what I spoke about this morning. But let's see what Luke did um, as a first century, uh, as a first century Gentile doctor. Um, so the fellowship of the believers, for Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking beds in their, bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And that's the conclusion. I can elaborate and ramble and say, you know, here's what Scripture says is what Pentecost happened. Here's what it means. But in reality, it means that there was, the church was created 
and the church operated in unity and generosity and as oneness, dedicating themselves to the apostles, i.e. discipleship. They were adding to the numbers daily, i.e. at least whether they were on the street corners evangelizing or it was their actions that evangelized for them, they were still evangelizing. They had law, they were doing things right, they were fulfilling the fruits of the Spirit, and they had unity, everything was in common. So all those elements that I can expand on are really represented here in Luke's writing as this is what the church looks like. Holy Spirit enabled the church to be created, enabled the church to operate. And in fact, um, to a certain extent, um, there's a book after, after the Bible is written. It's a historical book describing the early history of the church. And it really said um, there, that a person could not come into the congregation and come into a church service unless they were a Christian because they believed that you had to have the Holy Spirit and you had to be saved so you could be one with the community. Now, we've elaborated on that and we've changed it in our modern culture, so that's a really a cultural description. But there was a time when the church believed that to enter our oneness, to enter our community, you also need to be a part of it through salvation. And so they're very, they're very discriminatory about who they allowed in their community because they understood that we're supposed to be one. And so allowing someone who isn't a part of us changes that oneness, influences that oneness, when in fact we should be influenced by Christ, by Holy Spirit, and by the uh, teachings of the apostles. So that's Pentecost. Um, and I hope that you all recognize that today. This is important. Uh, Pentecost gets widely ignored in a lot of Christian holidays and um, Maybe my denominational history gives me, a, gives me a certain affection towards it, but in reality, Pentecost, listen to me, after a list of justification, I'm going to say something, and some people might be, Ugh. Pentecost is just as significant as resurrection, because Pentecost was the instillment of God into the hearts of man. Jesus' resurrection wasn't the instillment of God into the hearts of man. It enabled it, okay? It's just as significant, just as each of the Trinity is significant. But Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came into our hearts. That's when we are able to have a one-to-one -one relationship with God independently and as a group. Jesus enabled that. So again, Pentecost is just as significant as Easter and is just as significant as death and resurrection in Jesus' life because it's a result of it. The, the effect of something is just as significant as the things that led up to it. So I'm going to pray. Matthew's going to come up here. He has a few more things that uh, he wants to go through. I appreciate you entertaining this and I appreciate you listening to me. Um, if I ever get gifted the chance to do this again, whether at Origins or someplace else in my future, I hope I get better at it. Um, again, my, Colin, first slide. First slide. I hope to not sound like a teacher, though I do have a goal of eventually teaching theology one day, so um, don't critique me too much. But that's my email. I know I present a lot of scripture, and I know I present a lot of information, because this is important to me, and there's a lot of big concepts. Um, take this email down, I'll send you this PowerPoint, and I'll have one-to-one -one conversations with any questions that you may have. Um, and or, really, lean on Matthew and Zach. They are the pastors of the church. There's some things that I might say that's informed by my history and my past and my personal beliefs, and they are better guides for this church specifically than I am. So I'm going to pray, um, and then we can move on. Oh. Um, Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. God, thank you for your direction. But Holy Spirit, thank you for your comfort and the fulfillment of your promise. We understand that you, as a triune God, love us completely, love us wholly. We understand that you, as a triune God, operate together and in perfect unity. Um, through God's direction in the Old Testament, Jesus' life and sacrifice and resurrection in the new and Holy Spirit's guidance and for the rest of eternity, God, I pray that we just see your presence, we feel your presence, and we understand our significance as the church. We understand significance as carriers of your spirit, spirit that we operate in unity and commonness for your benefit and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
Thank you, Water. Just stick around up front. Katie, if you would like to come up here too, go ahead and come up. So Katie and Water have been a part of Origins for a while, and they have some news they want to share with us today too. And um, I'm going to give Water, I'm going to give you guys a challenge to share it in 15 seconds. 15 seconds. 15 seconds. Let them share that, um, and then we have some other family stuff that we want to we oh, want to talk through today right. too. But go ahead. Is your mic still on? You can go ahead and kind of give mic, us an update. Yeah, my yeah. mic's still on. All right, in 15 seconds. Well, we're moving to Portland. So we're leaving Origins. <laughs> said 15 seconds. Yeah, pull that Band-Aid. Um, we're, we're, we're Portland, Oregon for those. Yeah, we're, not, we're, we're moving across the country, not up the country. Um, there's been a dream and, uh, of mine since I was a child uh, and experienced my first mission trip in Portland to move up there and help the church out. When Katie and I got together, I informed her of this, and she agreed with it. Um, so uh, that, that, that's important to everything. Um, and this... The time, the recent, our recent life has suggested that this is a good time to do it before we settle down here and make it harder and harder to pull ourselves away. Um, we're going to move up there and establish our life there. Um, so this is not our last Sunday. We are here for a little while. Our move-out date seems to be June 24th, and so we'll be here for, I think, three, three more Sundays, and then we'll be moving out and uh, enjoying a cross-country drive with a dog. So yeah, there's their news. And so here's what we do as family. We want to send people off well. You know, so first thing we want to do is pray for them. Pray for, like, for God to establish them there, to give them favor there, uh, to give them roots quickly there. But we also want to love them while they're here. So we'd love for you guys just to make a point to talk to them, ask them more about the why, the how, the what, all of that kind of stuff, but also thank them for their years of being with Origins. Like, two of the hardest working individuals that we have on our volunteer staff. Like they do whatever they, they're asked and stuff that they're not asked to do. And they do it to the point of just like sweating profusely and whether it's hot or not, like they're, they're gonna knock it out. And so we're gonna miss them for several reasons. Number one, for what you bring, for what you do, but because of who you are mainly. And uh, we, we appreciate the time, but we also appreciate the fact that there's obedience to going where God calls. And as hard as it may be to leave, it's good to go when that's the reason. And so we want to thank you guys for, for modeling that too. So uh, pray for them over the next several weeks. They're going to need help loading up pods or whatever they're called, uh, whatever you guys have got. And so uh, be open to that and just go and load one day. And so we want, to, we want to send them off well in doing that. We're going to pray for them in just a minute. But Ashley Rastatter, if you will come up here too. You stop at the back row. Just come on up. Stop at the back row. If someone would do this for me, someone that knows Water and Katie well, if you would stand up real quick and just pray for them where you are. I don't care who you are. If you know them well, you love them well, you're free just to stand up and pray for their transition and everything they're going to do and just thank God for them on our behalf, and then we'll, we'll talk about Ashley. So we'll bow our heads and we'll wait. We trust that somebody will do it in five seconds. Thank you, guys. And we'll, we'll pray for them their last Sunday here, too. So we'll, we'll have a good old, good old Southern Baptist way of laying hands on, doing all that fun stuff, too. That's right, Baptists do that. And, and I'm not a great Baptist. But anyway, we're going to do that. So Ashley Rastatter, if you'll come on up front. Today is also Ashley Rastatter's official last day as our children's ministry director. After almost five years of serving uh, in that capacity and absolutely killing it, um, we want to thank you well as well. And so there's lots of little... Little faces walking towards the front. So we'll give them a minute. See? Yes. Somebody bring the tissue.
Um, five years ago, when Ashley started, our oldest kids were like seven and eight. And now they're in middle school. And now we have a whole lot more kids. Um, and I just thank you and all the parents, um, leadership, people who aren't parents. Um, we thank you for serving. Um, come here, Cooper. It's okay. I know. He can go. Okay. Um, yes. Yes. Okay. So we thank you for serving for five years, um, for developing it is to what it is today. Um, and the kids love it so much, and the parents love it so much, and we thank you. Um, this is a little book of, of memories um, that I hope that you will enjoy just of your, your time here. Um, and all the kids have uh, written you a little note. Cooper, can you hold it? Um, you all want to give your notes to Miss Ashley? Come here. Come stand here and then take them. Um, okay, so thank you for um, helping build a biblical foundation for all these kids that will last their lifetime and will impact their families, their children, their marriages, their communities, um, and it just the ripple effect is you know never, is is endless. So thank you for that. Um, and um, I know you have new exciting things in store and how God has um, just timed all of that perfectly and know that we love you. And I'm excited that you can now um, worship with your family here and um, as a family and take communion as family. Um, and um, we just thank you and love you.